If you have a God that has no design, purpose, meaning, rules, limits, and ultimately um, hopes for your the use of your body in right and wrong ways, other than what makes you quote unquote feel good or loved, then you're worshiping a different God. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here today as usual with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church in Hilton Head, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Great. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. Well, guys, Lambeth rages on. I, uh, I rewrote the introduction to this podcast like five times to try to account for all of it, but uh, then I scrapped the whole thing. <laughs> Before we get to the overarching issue that we actually wanted to talk about today, I wondered if you guys had any sort of quick reactions to or hot takes about what's happened so far. We're recording this on Wednesday afternoon in America for those curious. So I've been, I've been camping for the whole week and I've been outside of internet coverage, so I haven't been able to follow what's going on. But, but just in my you know, 15 years, however, 20 years of experience of these things, let me do my rundown so far of what's happened. Not having read a thing. And we'll say yay or nay, yeah. All the, all the, all the, all the bishops no, no, we, will, we will not be voting at all. That's right. <laughs> right, right. All the bishops have gathered. Uh, uh, shockingly, the Anglican Communion Office has found some way to avoid actually saying anything about anything. Um, so Lambeth 110 is hanging out there in the ether. No one said yes or no. Um, everyone can save face. Um, and the Orthodox people are going to go home disappointed because like Charlie Brown in the football, they came hoping to be able to, to, to kick a field goal. But Lucy, of course, the ACO and Lambeth just, uh, or the Canterbury just pulled the football out at the last minute. Like it happens every single time. <sighs> yeah. Is that where we are? Yeah, I mean, well, the, that sounds about about right. Yeah, the, the overriding thing to me is this apparently dogged, dogged insistence from Archbishop Welby and others to continually refer to the revisionist desire to bless same-sex unions as the result of long and studied Bible study and prayer. And I just, I want to see the Bible study. Show me the Bible study. Well, Matthew Vine. That, that that kind of thing. You know, he's look at this. Look at the look at the eminent scholars who have taken that position, like Matthew <laughs> right. and uh, yeah, Dave, Dr. Gushy, who I think even said, you know, we're the, he used to be an evangelical scholar. Now he's a he's an apostate, but he used mm-hmm. to. But he said he changed his mind after I think it was his daughter yeah. came, and then he revisited the scriptures, and then wow, That's right. <laughs> suddenly. Please, it's totally okay. But uh, for the most part, the the academically honest ones are just saying that they disagree with the Bible, not yeah. actually anymore trying to argue that it actually somehow affirms these relationships. Luke Timothy Johnson, right. uh, he did that. He, he's the most famous guy who came out and had a he wrote an article. I think it was for Commonwealth or Commonweal, and he said that explicitly. He said, "We're I'm not basing I." I point blank the scriptures are black and white in this issue and i have little patience with this somebody who's trying to cover that up um or flee the things like you know cultural uh or his cultural context uh as a as a means of getting over what the bible clearly says he says i'm not i'm not basing my change of mind on the bible i'm basing on on personal experience and he's he's saying everyone everyone else should too (laughs) remarkable well we can thank and we can thank uh robert gagnon 
in large part for that. I mean, he's the one, you know, his book, Bible and Homosexual Practice was, you know, basically shut down the actual academic discussion at that level because he did all of the Syriac, all of the Aramaic, all of the everything, you know, followed every footnote and dusted off every old papyri and um, just unequivocally showed that it was one univocal message throughout the Bible, um, which then changed the discussion. I almost was almost I remember, you know, being a part of that, the, the, the discussion changing in front of us, like on blogs and in various discussions because said, well, even though the Bible says this, you know, we now know. And sort of that was the discussion that changed um, because it was never actually about the clear teaching of scripture. It was about the um, changing cultural um, mores and the, and the spirit of the age, as it were. But, you know, watching Lambeth, you know, it's just been, it's, you know, frankly, it's quite embarrassing uh, to watch, you know, an otherwise purported group of adult leaders, um, you know, fumbling, bumbling. I mean, it, it reminds me of the cartoon sort of sketches in between various Monty Python skits um, in their in their movies, like these <laughs> yeah. groups of people running around, you know, and like grumbling, mumbling, they're running around grumbling someone else. And the, the changes and the obfuscation and the outright duplicity, um, you know, amongst amongst Christian people is just, it's, it's really hard to watch. I mean, it's just a simple question. It's a simple, straightforward question. You know, do you agree with what was decided 20 years ago or not? And if not, you know, we said this last time, then put your, you know, stand up for something. I mean, even the, even the, um, the I mean, the discussion about it has been so disingenuous, you know, that the sort of outrage that people would be forced, forced to go on the record. It's like, well, we're asking you to clarify as bishops what you teach, preach and defend as part of your uh, apostolic, quote unquote, apostolic witness to the church. And we would like to know where you stand on this very important issue, you know, and, and, and the fact that it's an important issue is agreed upon. I mean, look, we just had an entire month, uh, you know, worldwide celebration of how important this issue is. And so to argue that somehow, you know, where there's this sort of vocal group of traditionalists that are just so stuck in the past and have this sort of um, esoteric concern about human sexuality is, is laughable. And so we have this this situation, and then the, to to compound the embarrassment, you have this sort of fawning over something so trite as I don't know if you saw this. There was a moment where they where they were debating or talking about the reconciliation, and all of the bishops lovingly and with great trepidation exchanged their dear pectoral crosses and their rings with each other, and 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 had to had to realize that they that they would get these dear treasures back someday. And that was a picture of trust and reconciliation. And the way that people were talking about this on Twitter, you would have thought that they had just, you know, uh, I don't know, exchanged firstborn children for, for life or something. But it was and they were going on and on about this, about and, and all the while, you know, all of this fawning, all of this sort of trite, superficial sentimentality was was just covering this deep disagreement, which has been clarified and had been had been uh, is is roiling under the surface. And it was just it was just hard to watch. I mean, you know, total unanimity on these on these these calls that were like, we think, you know, we shouldn't actively destroy the planet. Do you agree or disagree? You know, we think that the church should be about welcoming the neighbor and things. You're like, these are just 
like no one disagrees with this because they are so platitudinous and vague and broad brush that of course we're going to mean, who in their right mind would disagree with, you know, we think that people should live in comfort as opposed to, you know, uh, direct torture. It's like, okay, you know, <laughs> but, but then the actual rubber hit the road, which is what we talked about where the Bible would seem to contradict your own life and your own personal sense of autonomous sexual identity. Of course, we have no clear consensus on that, and we can't make a decision, and, and it's rude, and it's unchristian for you to ask me to. Well, that's just a joke. And I think, if anything, I mean, Kevin Carlson on Anglican Inc. keeps calling this the extinction-level event uh, for the Anglican Communion, and I don't know, you know, I hope that's what it is in a certain sense, but I think it will, it certainly has been an embarrassment to watch, and, um, and I think the people involved bear a lot of the responsibility for that. Yeah, I was just about to say that the only biblical, a biblical image that comes to mind with the exchanging of the tokens is, you know, maybe uh, Judah giving Tamar his staff and his, not knowing, of course, who she was. And, uh, yeah, there's definitely a questionable uh, <laughs> circumstance that if you know what I'm talking about. But that's, that's the only biblical image that comes to mind. <laughs> Well, I just saw again, I mean, it's perfectly fine insofar as it goes, but the context just and, and yeah. the yeah. sort of the it's a it made it so, so laughable. It's a it's a parliament of horrors. I mean, P.G. O'Rourke had a great book out, Parliament of Horrors. He's talking about U.S. Congress, but but uh, but it could much more fittingly describe what the Lambert conferences become. And, and no, no. So this is why I'm, I'm always every year just so frustrated and disappointed with, with Anglican bishops who decide to go who are Orthodox. Don't go to that thing. It's just it's, you're just you're embarrassing yourself. You're dragging the Jesus through the mud. I know you don't mean to, but that's what you're doing because you're 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 having you're associating his name with these clowns. And it's just it's just a it's a it's an exercise in futility, and it's not doing anyone any good. It's certainly not helping the gospel be proclaimed anywhere. Uh, it's just making everyone laugh at Anglicanism, which, which they should at this point. Well, um, and now, and now, and now, what we've seen—I mean, the outcome of this is exactly what we 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 talked about last week was a distinct possibility, which is that people on the quote unquote progressive side are pointing to the Archbishop statement about the disagreements in the communion as validation of sort of the two, you know, what we would call the two, two integrities. integrities, you know, that's right. what, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what, so that's what they're saying. They're like, see, see, the Archbishop has finally recognized that we are divided on this issue, but we will walk together in brotherhood and unity and all the, you know, all the platitudes. And that's, that's what is being witnessed to when the people refuse, you know, I mean, at least they refuse to take communion, you know, but did you see that, that he, he said in order, and I appreciate this to a certain degree, although it seemed it was very, the timing was suspect that, you know, to preserve the sanctity of the, of the sacrament, that there would be no pictures allowed during uh, the actual communion service, you know, it just happened to be the case. So no one could get a real clear picture of who was sitting and who was standing, who was taking, you know, that would have been quite interesting to see who consider themselves in, in full communion or not with the Anglican, um, you know, leadership. But at any rate, I mean, I, I, I was tend to agree with you, Matt, and I, I agreed with you last week, but having watched this, I am in full agreement with um, your, your statements from last week as a result of this, because what has happened is that without an actual decisive show of broken unity, like that we, we thought we were going to see of, of 
a genuine agreement that we are in disarray and disagreement, then um, people will be able to spin it um, as as if, well, this is just a secondary issue that only hot-headed, you know, reactionary um, fundamentalists really would break over because the rest of us see that you know love triumphs over this um, you know this this secondary issue, and that's that's basically what Archbishop, quote unquote, Archbishop Curry has been. Um, saying since the moment he became prime, uh, whatever he is, a presiding bishop. So, you know, yeah, so I think that's where, um, you know, I think that's where we'll continue to have to to talk about this because the idea that this is a secondary issue is is just not true. It's just not, it's, it's, it's never has been and never will be. We've got our own house to clean though too because the communion partner bishops believe that. So lots of prominent clergy in the ACNA believe that too. I mean, that's why, you know, it was like, a, what's that woman's name? Uh, uh, Hannah King wrote that article about why can't we just get along? Um, there's, there, was a, there was a fight early on in the ACNA in 2011 uh, over uh, Tory Bauckham's, he's a was former rector of Turo, who had this ministry relationship with uh, the Bishop of Virginia, who was an active, actively promoting same-sex blessings. He was taken down for that, but that sentiment is not gone by any stretch of the imagination. There are lots of Anglo ACNA and I, I think a bishop or two who's, who, who have much more sympathy for the communion partner bishops in the Episcopal church. Mm. And so we got to really watch out for this. Um, and, and correct and me if I'm wrong, Nick, but do you, you clergy in your diocese are not allowed to take communion from Episcopal uh, in, in Episcopal service. Is that correct? That's correct. I'm in, the yeah, diocese, I don't think... I'm in the Diocese of Christ Our Hope. We are expressly forbidden to take communion from an Episcopal priest. Well, That's again, our... and that seems, I mean, you know, bishops have their, their prerogatives, but that does seem to be a, uh, that to provide for a very clear statement, uh, a moral clarity there about where we stand uh, yeah. with respect to the Episcopal Church. Um, you know, again, it's like we talked about last week, there's a and I pray and we're grateful for when bishops, um, you know, exercise godly authority and and discipline and and defense, because then it frees up the rectors and the lay people and the people underneath them to actually, you know, move freely um, and not not then bear the burden of having to defend some of these ideas that um, rightly should be should be discuss- discussed and, you know, debated at the top. But, um, you know, this is where, Matt, you know, I don't know, you know, just in my, my four years now officially in the ACNA, you know, it's been instructive and helpful to a certain degree to be in parishes that have been under active uh, legal assault from the Episcopal Church, because that's a very clarifying place to be, you know, because you can say, well, if you didn't think it was important, you might think it's important when the doors are padlocked and all of your belongings are out on the front lawn. You know? So we probably should, we should probably talk about this a little bit in the event that that happens. And, you know, God bless them. The, our former church, Christ Church, Mount Pleasant is one of the um, parishes that is, has decisively uh, been ruled against and already has plans and is in place to move out at the end of this month, begin worshiping in September at a local elementary school, you know, and Christ and St. Luke's church here is still, uh, we have an appeal, but you know, there doesn't seem to be uh, a lot of, it seems to be as likely as anything that at the very least for a season, if not for in perpetuity, we will possibly worship outside the building uh, depending on what happens. And so, you know, that, that is the type of clarity that I think that I had hoped 
would be across the ACNA, you know, and it's, it's been disappointing as we, I mean, it's part of why we started this podcast back up, part of why we started the Facebook page, because um, it's been disappointing to see people, particularly newcomers into the ACNA, um, not appreciate um, the whole, the whole reason for its genesis, the entire, re- like none of the, it's like, it's a little bit how I get mad at people about um, when they talk about the Reformation as if justification by faith alone were not the, the linchpin, you know, they, they talk about like, well, you know, Luther didn't like invocation of saints and maybe, you know, so it's like, listen, none of that absolutely none of that all of which i agree with or many much of good was would have actually allowed luther to to burn the papal bull to right. to risk his soul in purgatory like he was officially excommunicated from the catholic church and none of the other things that you think are important you're like well you know celibate priesthood or um the indication of mary and all like these are all things that i don't agree with but that was none of those would work except for this one thing and that's where when the ACNA people are like, well, you know, we, it's not just about Gene Robinson. It's like, well, it's not, it, it's, it's not, that not was just the, about- <laughs> that's what I was like, that was, and we talked about this for so long and I don't know, but I guess it bears repeating, particularly in light of what is now going to be coming out of Lambda. It's just that, that if you have a God that has no design purpose, meaning rules, limits, and ultimately um, hopes for your the use of your body in right and wrong ways, um, other than what makes you quote unquote feel good or loved, then you're worshiping a different God. Like we are not in the same religion. And, and that is what's being on display in the Anglican communion is that we have bishops of a different God, uh, bishops who are, who are, who are worshiping and following, um, you know, that, which is not the gospel, you know, Paul would say in Galatians. And, and I think if we're not clear about that, then of course, we're going to start wondering if, um, you know, this manna is good out here in the wilderness when we had, uh, you know, we had, at least we had bricks, um, and, and bread in Egypt. And, and that's what we're watching all around us. Well, that's, li- that, that's what we wanted to talk about today. Sort of the, the limits of orthodoxy and fellowship, because it's, it seemed to me at least last week, I don't know what the hue and cry is on the internet right now, but last week, the refusal of certain Orthodox bishops to take communion with their supposedly brother bishops was the big thing. And one common response was to suggest that there's nothing about sex in the Apostles' Creed, which is supposedly, you know, the standard for Orthodoxy. Yeah. Someone will share the text of the Creed on Twitter and then write something like, this is Orthodox, right? Just trying to find the bit where sexuality is the cutoff point for who's welcome at the table. So, Let's talk about orthodoxy in the creed. How far does the creed go? Does orthodoxy need a broader definition? And maybe for the millionth time, why is sex actually worth disfellowshipping? <laughs> I think the first thing that people who wrote, who quote that are, are just displaying um, an incredible level level of ignorance of church history. I mean, just just it's almost blindingly, stunningly ignorant. It's, <laughs> would would post say the Nicene Creed or the or the Apostles Creed and say, "Well, hey, only if you break this are you out of the church." I mean, what would that mean? Think just about it historically. That would mean that that before those creeds were formulated, the Apostles Creed wasn't probably put together by the apostles. The, the Nicene Creed wasn't wasn't finalized until uh, three eighty three, I think. It was written in three twenty three, but before that, we had. We had Martianism, which the church recognized as heretical, 
we had Gnosticism, which the, which the church would already recognize as as heretical, all before there was even a creed. What were the what were the people using to delineate orthodoxy from heterodoxy without the creed? And the answer to that question is they were using the scriptures. They were using they were using the already given deposit of faith. Subsequent to Nicaea, uh, after Nicaea. Did the churches stop recognizing any kind of heresy other than the heresy that violated Nicaea? No. What, two decades, three decades after, after the finalization of Nicaea, Pelagius, the Anglican, shows up and starts denying the necessity of grace, uh, special That's grace. Right. And Augustine says no. And, and, and church councils met and defined Pelagianism and Pelagius as a heretic. And there's no evidence. I, 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 I'm looking. At, I'm trying to find any. I, I, I've been doing some reading this last two weeks, three weeks. I'm writing a paper on this, but um, there's no evidence that Pelagius ever had any problem with the creed. I mean, he was he, he, he was seen to be creedally orthodox, and and yet he was considered a heretic because of his violation of very clear biblical principle of sola gratia, uh, of grace alone. So, so historically, that just that argument just is a whole water. Always, the church has said that Nicaea is, of course, a necessity, a necessary thing that you have to confess and believe. But, but it's not the only thing you have to confess right. and believe. And when you come, when it comes to sexuality, you know, this is here we're, we're now going back on the track that we followed many, many times. But, <laughs> um, but, but two things. On the one hand, because. The, the sin of sexual immorality is one of those sins that Jesus says will lead someone, if they don't repent, without repentance and without confession or repentance, will lead someone um, to be disallowed entry into the kingdom of heaven. That's what actually Jesus said it to Paul in First Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 9. That means that any cleric, any clergy person, any, any church leader who is actively promoting that behavior is actively leading people to hell. Now, I don't know what, what standard of orthodoxy you have, but I would say that anybody in any age if, from the apostles until now would say that if you are pretending to be a minister of the gospel and actively leading people to hell, you're not a minister of the gospel. You're out. You're, 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 you're unorthodox. And then finally, and this is the more familiar track we've been taking all along, it's because sex is about marriage and marriage is about the gospel, any kind of twisting of the, of the model of marriage and, and sexuality for the human person is, uh, is an assault, a direct assault on the gospel. It's a heretical and, sermon and, to the world. Yeah, exactly. And, and, that, and that goes back to, I mean, and, and, and that you can find a clear line from the modern day all the way back to the apostles where any kind of deviation from the gospel is always, you're always out of, you're always outside. So, Paul castigating Peter, Paul writing about the, the Judaizers who probably had good Christology and good, at least up-to-date Trinitarian understanding of who God is, and yet they denied the necessity of grace and faith alone, and so, uh, or the sufficiency of grace and faith alone, and so they were anathema. So anyway, I don't have much more to say than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, I'm going to ask you to say something else. I wonder... Just um, and not even to play devil's advocate, that's not really accurate, but to to sort of wonder if even if we desired for some reason to say that the creed had to be somehow the boundary of orthodoxy, couldn't we say that the phrase I believe in Jesus Christ 
actually means something much broader than those simple five words in English, that it implies a belief in the things Jesus said, in the apostles he commissioned, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, yeah, Jesus said that himself. And unless you abide in my word, you're not my disciple. And, then, and, and so it's not, I'm relating to this person I call Jesus, who I, who I have a, a spiritual, uh, I, I feel like I have a spiritual relationship with. It's, it's Jesus is an actual person who, right. who has a personality, who has uh, laid out his own will and his own desires, both through his own words recorded by the apostles and uh, his, his words through the apostles and the prophets. So it's, I mean, the, the idea that you can know and love Jesus while simultaneously rejecting and blaspheming his word is it, try that in a human relationship. I mean, try, right. try, try that with your wife, right? I, honey, I love you. Just shut up. <laughs> honey, I want to, I want to have a, I want to have a deep, personal intimate relationship with you ship with you but i don't care what you want me to do i don't care what you, i don't care what you say well that's why and that's well, that's exactly why this is just a version of sort of a modern version of gnosticism you know if you notice some of the tweets at least i think i sent y'all a couple you know people were saying something along the lines of you know when the bishops once again had the opportunity to discuss spiritual and you know sort of uh well i think that's how you, you know spiritual matters Instead, they concentrated on, you know, the flesh or something. Instead, they concentrated on bodily things as if there was this distinction between, you know, the, the uh, which is a classic Gnostic historical distinction, you know, that the body is somehow unimportant. You know, you can do with it what you want, either be Epicurean or Stoic. It doesn't really matter. Whereas the higher minded things are the, you know, sort of the ephemeral spiritual. And that's precisely opposite of what the Christian um, incarnational um, you know, witness to the world is, I mean, look at Paul in Romans 12, right? He says, um, therefore, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, you know, which is totally contrary to a pagan understanding of, you know, the body as a, as a shell that can be um, manipulated as a, however you would like, because our spiritual worship is the laying down of our physical bodies. And the first step of laying down your physical body in, in self-sacrifice for God and neighbor is to recognize where it came from, who designed it, what it's for, and how it should be used. And that's what is being denied by all of this appeal to um, you know, uh, the, the idea that, that there is no created purpose of, for men and women in the quote unquote binary, as it's called now, um, for the glory of God and his renown throughout the world. I mean, this is what that's what's being actively denied. And so, you know, when it says, I believe in God, the father, the creator, you know, I mean, that's all right there in that first, the, those first few words, you have all of the um, theology represented that's being rejected by um, an embrace of the LGBTQ idea of what it means to be a human, because we are saying that we believe in God who's been revealed, who's the father of the redeemer, who is the creator uh, with a purpose, a plan, and a, uh, and a, and a reason. Um, you know, we haven't gotten to redemption yet. You know, this is sort of Genesis 1 and 2, but that alone is enough to, at the very least, argue for creedal orthodoxy with respect to the creative purposes of men and women. And then, of course, you say, well, why are we so screwed up? It's like, well, the whole message of the Bible, we have, a, we have creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so, 
you know, marriage, as we've talked about before, is so essential and crucial to the, na- to the redemptive narrative of Scripture because it is a mirror of Christ, the Redeemer, and his bride. And so, you know, it, again, I mean, we, we've said this before, but it bears repeating because it's disappointing how many people you find who are not able to articulate any of this with any sort of confidence. But it's also encouraging that more and more people are, and you know, in part probably because you know we're a small voice, but at least we're coming at it in every possible direction we can in the hopes that when a Christian person who knows this to be true, like most Christian people, I think, that have been brought up and discipled to any degree, um, who trust the Bible, who have a, you know, maybe don't consider themselves deeply theological, but, but are sincere in their faith. When they hear someone say something like, well, if it's not in the creed, you know, the, the creed doesn't talk about sex, so we shouldn't be talking about it. They know instinctively that that's not true, I, I believe. They, they know that there's something wrong with it, but there's too many people who can't make the step from knowing something's wrong with it to lovingly and with courage and some compassionate conviction push back into the person saying that. And that's what we're trying to, you know, if you're out there and that's where you find yourself and take heart, because that's what we're, we're trying to do in part by this, this podcast. And I know through our particular ministries is not to get you people into further fights, uh, but to allow them, as we've said, always to like first Peter three, the be prepared with a ready defense for the hope that you have. And if you're someone who finds it hopeful that God has actually spoken to you as a man or a woman and has provided means and resources for you to, to grow into the, the beauty of his created order for your life as a husband, as a wife, as a son, as a daughter, as a friend, as whatever the case is, well, then um, you can rest in that hope and then have some resources to defend that hope against a world that is that is frankly um, coming at every single aspect of that, whether it's from motherhood to fatherhood to sons and daughters to men and women to you know, the coming at it in every possible way because it's the place where the image of God um, is seen restored and is actually the witness of the church to the world. As you were describing the modern day Gnostic differentiation between you know nice heavenly things and annoying worldly things, I can imagine a listener wondering about Paul's admonition in Colossians 3 to not set your mind on earthly things, but on things above. And I just wanted to acknowledge that while Paul does say that, he's not saying that we should not worry about earthly things. He's saying that the things that have been accomplished above will inform and in fact resurrect us to new life to engage the things Amen. down here that that he's not drawing a circle around one thing to care about and one thing not to care about he's saying <laughs> That's right. how how you have been renewed will now allow you to engage the world with the gospel Amen. That's right. Well, that's in the conclusion of the Romans 12 passage, you know, that's why we, by the renewing of our minds, we will know what is good. You know, we, we will have the, the, in part, the, the renewal of our misguided understandings of who God is, God, the father, God, the son, God, you know, again, and so on and so forth. But I agree with you, Nick. And that's, um, that's a, a, a real time meta example of how to defend a rejoinder to, um, to, you know, well, didn't Paul say here that you should set your mind on things above? And then we have Nick, the, the Bible ninja, just um, <laughs> defending with, with, the, with the force of your attacker's um, energy, you have defended that. So. <laughs> so now that we've talked a little bit about 
what orthodoxy is. Obviously, anytime you put up a fence, you find that some people are on the other side of it. Now, we're called in Scripture after a process to remove certain people from fellowship with us in Christ. And that can be seen from the world's viewpoint as the worst possible thing you can do. But I wonder if it isn't true that sometimes that's actually the first step in the Lord doing a work in that person's life. I mean, yeah, I think, I, I think that any congregation that, that biblically practices church discipline will, will probably have noticed that and then recognize uh, that to be the case. I mean, you, there's just the thought of, of, of telling someone you can't come to the table is hard just it's so hard to even contemplate doing and for i remember when we first started doing a good shepherd people were just horrified how could how how dare you how could you possibly do that and so we had to have a lot of time just working through matthew 18 and saying this isn't this isn't matt's idea this isn't this isn't this isn't the idea of some really you know pharisaical uh person this is jesus who said to do this um and so since jesus said to do this there must be a good obviously a good reason for it and a, and a help a, a reason that's good knowledge not just for the church but also for the person involved and you know matthew 18 you go to the if you have someone sinned against you you go to them face to face and if that doesn't work you take two elders and you and you uh you, you try and work the situation out there if that doesn't work then finally the last step of course is that the person has to be uh disfellowshipped and in, a, in an anglican context where there's where there's a liturgy and a communion every sunday that usually involves saying to the person okay you can come listen to the preaching but you you can't you can't come forward to the table or and this could the theoretically person... work it out at a communion level too right like the operations in fact are pretty much the same exactly exactly so we've done that three times now i think at good shepherd and um two of those times the person who we've had the discipline has just gone off one was uh, to, to the two who've just gone off and never come back and people who divorced their spouses without cause, just rather mm-hmm. whatever reason they want to. Uh, but one was, was a man who, uh, was causing, he wanted, he wanted me to name him the prophet of our church, <laughs> like, like the official position of prophet, um, where he would stand up and give, give his, his, his prophecies every Sunday. And I said, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Um, and, when I said no, he got to be really, you know, really divisive in the church and trying to carve off a certain group of people who would be following him as his, as their prophet. Um, and so it got to the point we followed the Matthew 18, Matthew 18 things. Um, and we had to ultimately his fellowship and, and he was, you know, it was, it was hurtful because he was one of the, he was a guy I'd known for a long time. He hadn't always been that, that crazy. Um, so he just got something into his head, but he went off for about two or three years. And then one Easter vigil, great vigil, the lights were off because we had candlelight and everything. And then the lights came on for the great hallelujahs. And there he is right in the front row. And, and I'm, he's a big guy and he had threatened the church with violence. In fact, for a whole year, we had a, we had a police officer, off-duty police officer in the parking lot because of this guy's threats. So there he is in the front row. I'm thinking, oh man, what's he, what's he going to do? Um, so I was before communion during the piece. I went up and I said, Hey, yeah, what do you, what are your, what are your intentions? And he had tears in his eyes. And he said, look, I, I, I realized I've sinned against you and Jesus and I want your forgiveness. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. So he, we, I gave it to him. He took, he took communion at that time and we were going to meet again that week, that week, that, 
that I think it was Tuesday or he he fell he had a heart attack and fell dead. Um, but it was in a it, the whole church was in shock, just stunned, and it was clearly God's hand moving him to repentance and reconciliation mm-hmm. before his uh, before his death. So it's a pretty amazing story. It is amazing. And the whole point of the Matthew eighteen process is not to you know, shun people to the outer darkness, it's to win them back to Christ. And, right. and when we talk about it having having application on a communion level, you could say that if people, you know, went to the Episcopal church and tried to speak the truth to them and then ultimately said, you know what, I'm really, this hurts us, but you cannot be part of our fellowship anymore. You cannot kneel down at the altar rail with us. Um, we, we look forward to the day when you repent and can return to us, that's the kind of diagnosis that can shock somebody out of their stupor and yeah. um, bring them home. So it's not just for the sake of the person you're disciplining. It's also for the sake of the whole church. I mean, that Paul described oh, yeah. this type of thing as fault is gangrene. It's false teaching, sin, if unchecked spreads like, like an infection in a congregation and and you've in the, the purpose he gives for telling the man who is with his father's wife in first Corinthians five, that he is, is out of fellowship and can't, can't take, uh, can't be part of the church anymore is just that because a little beast works his way through the whole loaf and you've got, you, that's right. We're not, it's I, a public, it's a public witness. I mean, I was in a, I was in a church service. Oh, oh not try to um, keep all the guilty uh, nameless, but, um, but I watched a, a minister give a, a vested Buddhist monk a communion, you know, or I watched this and I said, you know, what sort of, uh, if you were just a, a casual observer, you know, a nominal Christian casual observer of this, you would, you would make out that like, well, um, I guess it's no They're difference between being yeah. a Buddhist monk than a, you know, than a regular Christian, you know, and that would be very enlightened, seemingly enlightened position to hold but that's essentially what you're doing uh when you have someone that's involved you know and even in the 79 prayer book or the fiscal church you know someone is, is a public scandal is the is the um is what you know the criteria for excommunication um and i you know we've only had i my ministry i've only had to consider it one time and i had a very deep heartfelt discussion with the person about and i said this is what's going to happen if you persist um, in coming to church without uh, making amends for this um, situation, you're, you're perpetuating. And, you know, I don't want to do this, but this is what's going to happen because it's bringing into question whether any of this means anything at all. Uh, if I just, without question, um, continue to welcome you as a, as a um, Christian brother to the, to the table. And, you know, I didn't see this person for, a couple of months after that, but then just similar to story, although I don't, he didn't die, but, but other than that, it's a very similar story that not only was there reconciliation between him and, and the people that he was uh, in, in violation with, but with us and deep affection and deep re- rejoicing and all of the things, you know, it was like the father with the prodigal son. I mean, it was, you know, kill the fatty calf. He's my son's come home and, and and had I not been through that, I wouldn't. I would sort of believe it in theory, but I have watched it in practice. And I, you know, it, like I said before, it's not a common practice, but it was the last measure. It's the last, you know, witness. The last weapon, for lack of a better word, we have 
um, in the shepherd's arsenal to, you know, protect the sheep, you know, so therefore it should be used sparingly, but, but when it is, it can be very powerful, you know, and that's why I'm grateful again for bishops. You know, I was, you can't do that lightly and you can talk with a bishop and get, and I had some good counsel, thank God. Uh, and all of that. And, um, you know, I hope I don't have to do it again, but I hope, you know, we're trying to be preventative maintenance now, you know, more so than anything. Like, let's not get to this point, you know, let's, let's, let's keep it short accounts as the Bible says. But, um, you know, I think this is going to be more of an acute problem going forward as, as the delineation, you know, the, the supposed middle ground that we have known all along is not there um, ever since, um, you know, there's no halfway, to be kind of supportive of, you know, this sort of non-biblical sort of idea of human identity surrounding and dependent on your sexual desires versus a Christian um, understanding of, of human identity grounded in the, the revelation of God and Christ to the world. There's no middle ground between those two. And people are waking up to that reality and watching the culture sort of, you know, just with increasing speed, jettison any uh, residual idea of normal, quote unquote, Christian normalcy around these issues. And so I feel for the layperson, or even more particularly, maybe for the rectors who signed up for a um, ministry, you know, or thought the church was something other than the um, the battleground for the the soul of the world. You know, I mean, this is like, like this is you know. I thought going to church was going to be getting you know, plum pudding and you know uh, food drives and maybe a, a you know Christmas tree sales or something. And all of a sudden, I'm getting yelled at by my my nephew and my you know my ex wife thinks I'm a fundamentalist and my you know my I'm I, I'm confused. You know, and I think that's where you're sort of a lot of people who are in the pews are. And, you know, I think a lot of rectors are waking up to the fact that they were trying to straddle an impossible divide. And we are going to see more, like, from my perspective, when I see people try to argue about this creed thing, it's like the final gasp. It's like, we've been trying to be orthodox, and we've been claiming to be orthodox, but like, this is the final statement. And then, you know, six months from now, they're either deconstructing, or have actually just decided that they are progressive, you know, and it's like, it's like when you notice those, you mentioned David Gushy, you know, if you look at some of his, some of his last writings as editor of Christianity Today, you know, it was like this, obviously this guy is going in the wrong direction. And then lo and behold, when he comes, you know, finishes his tenure there, it turns out he was, has become a progressive, you know, and, and, the, and the, the people are just stacking up on that side. And we don't relish that, but we will continue to witness to the faithful ones for all delivered to the saints and welcome them back in. Um, to fellowship with the other of us redeemed sinners who have been rightly brought up short by the revealed law of God in all sorts of ways, including our sexuality, but not limited to that, and have found deep um, and abiding reconciled hope in that confession that Christ is the friend of sinners. You know, but if you, if you, again, we said it before, but if you lose the the definition and diagnosis of sin, well, then you've lost the the uh, redemption and and mercies of the gospel at the same time, and that's just not something that we're going to be able to to do. Well, it seems like we can, to the extent that we're willing to speak for Orthodox primates, which is very little, but I think that we would we would be right in assuming that when they refuse to take communion with people who are outside the fence, it is with the dear hope that those people come back 
inside the fence and repent and turn from their wickedness and live just like Jesus Christ wanted. And we do the same thing. We repent, we confess, and we ask for Christ's mercy on our lives. And that's how we, any of us can kneel down together and take communion side by side. We do thank you for listening to the Stand Firm podcast this week. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch, rate and review the podcast on iTunes, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.